Amen. You can be seated. I'd invite you to, uh, if you brought a Bible with you, um, or open your Bible app on your phone, to uh, Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians 4, we're going to, I know we've taken a significant break. Um, oh, we're dismissing kids. Yes, there they go. They're not waiting on me anyway. Uh, school-age kids headed out the back. Uh, I think we're jumping back into our uh, catechisms as things are getting more normal. Um, if you were with us over the holiday schedule, um, it was, it was kind of all over the place. Some evenings, uh, some mornings, we had a great Christmas Eve, great Christmas Day, and uh, we're back in it. Um, but um, if you're anything like me, uh, Jason was the last one who preached in the book of Galatians. And if you're new here, uh, we typically try to pick a book and we walk through it uh, in four to six to eight weeks to three years or something of that nature. Um, so I asked Jason, Jason, what was the last sermon you preached in Galatians? And he said, I have no idea. Um, so if he's the one who preached it and doesn't remember, I'm just going to take a bet that you likely probably also don't remember. The book of Galatians, let me catch you up on uh, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to churches that are scattered in an area of Galatia. And the summary is basically that these people had become Christians under Paul's ministry. He planted the church. They had become Christians, and he's left to go plant other churches. And he's writing back to them very strong words, calling them foolish at times, pleading with them like a mother does her child who has wandered off the way. Because many of them have wandered off the path, exactly that. Lives have gone astray, and this happened as a result of some false teachers who had kind of come into the church teaching a false gospel. Their message was, was that they should believe in Jesus Christ and obey the law of God, and as a result, they will be saved. And just hearing that at first blush, we think, okay, that, that kind of makes sense, but Paul says, no, that actually doesn't make sense. That's actually a false gospel, he calls it. Paul's message, or the Christian gospel, is to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And as a result, you will have the desire and power through the Holy Spirit to obey God's law. The false teacher's message was that belief and obedience go together and result in salvation. Paul is arguing that the Christian gospel, in order to be part of God's kingdom... Belief and salvation go together, and they result in joyful obedience. So we get that, right? And if you jump back into uh, chapter 4, which is where we are, Paul continually makes this point again and again. He starts off, let's look at verse 3, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. This is uh, one of the messages I think that uh, Weston preached several weeks ago. In verse 3 he says that we live enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Rules that I must believe, I must follow for our lives to have meaning. We're enslaved to these elementary principles this is what he's saying to them, and we understand that. Rules that I, I must follow for my life to have meaning. This is what is enslaving all of mankind. These things that you might identify with, like achievement. I have to be the very best at everything I do. I have no rest. In order for my life to have meaning, I've got to be the best. I cannot fail. 
Or this idea, this another elementary principle that kind of governs our cultures, this idea of hyper-reality. I will be happy when I have the next thing, when I have a life as great as my neighbors have, when, I have, when my day is going as well as all those people I follow on social media, my life will be great, it will have meaning when I get the next thing. Or we see this in sexuality. We see our culture just trying to satiate their appetite that I will fulfill whatever desire I have without any cost or commitment on my part. If I want it, then I want it and I'm going to have it. But all of these things, supposed freedoms that I can do whatever I want, Paul is saying, are actually enslaving desires because they're insatiable, because they're never satisfied and ultimately the end in destruction. Now this is enslavement to these elementary principles and it really plays out in two different ways. One that's quite evident here is this desire to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Glandular living, we've called it. I do what makes me feel good. It's certainly alive in our world today. And don't be so quick just to point fingers at other people that you know that live like this. Like this is alive and well, if we're honest, even in our own hearts. This is what normally drives conflict in marriage, drives conflict in any relationship because I want what I want and they don't care what I want and so we're going to fight over it. The other, other, the first is glandular living. I do what makes me feel good. The other is to try to appease God by your own works and your own righteousness. You try to find your own fulfillment through your own efforts, trying to earn your own salvation. And this is what is really alive here. This is the message of these false teachers, certainly. Left to our own devices, we are always forgetting the gospel. It's the default mode of the human heart, Luther said. So the book of Galatians is this bright and glowing and emboldened reminder of the gospel. Now let's get to the passage that we're going to focus at today in verse 21. And I didn't put all this on the screen. I apologize. I was having problem formatting it all on there. So if you brought the old school kind with the actual pages or you're following it in, in your device, let, let me read this for us. Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. And I, I pray I don't lose you. This is steeped in some historical arguments that he's bringing up. And we'll try to simplify some of it as we move forward. He says in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, and she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, verse 28, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But, that, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
And then verse 1 of chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Let me pray for us quickly. Father, we believe that your words to us in the Holy Scriptures are words of life. They often come in conflict with our desires. Uh, Many times, they're very difficult sometimes, I guess, for us to understand. So we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would bring them to, to life in us. Even as we read, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction? Would you bring encouragement to our hearts and souls? And may your gospel go forth in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're really doing you a bit of disservice today because we're kind of jumping in in this midst of this four-chapter-long argument that Paul is making Um, And it's not really a crazy disservice because you can go home and just start from chapter 1 and catch yourself up pretty quickly. But left to our own devices, we're always forgetting the gospel. And this is the message that Paul is preaching to these people that he cares so deeply about that have wandered off the path. And he's using this illustration of Abraham and Sarah. And he's trying to make this point. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone is the only requirement for salvation. It is not anything that you do. It is not of your works, he would say also in Galatians, so that no one can boast. Again, in verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. The son of the slave woman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. So let's go back to Genesis 15. Let me remind ourselves of what's happening to Abraham and Sarah and why Paul, this great missionary, is calling upon that and bringing it back up to make this point, grace alone by faith alone and Christ alone. When we go back to Genesis 15, we see Abraham and Sarah. We see in actually chapter 12 that God had given this promise to Abraham that Uh, He was going to be the father of many nations, and Abraham and Sarah are getting up in years, and they are not seeing the fulfillment of that promise within reach. Abraham is discouraged, but he and Sarah have no children, no heir to fulfill the promises of becoming this great nation, and God's intention was to give Abraham a son and an heir when it looked humanly impossible so that Abraham would have to rely solely on God. And just a Quick caveat, isn't that true of our lives that a lot of times that the promises of God are not fulfilled in the timing in which we would like? A lot of times there's the promise. I felt the Lord really calling me to plant a church 10 years before I saw any fulfillment of that promise. And there are still other things that I feel like God has specifically spoken to me that I'm looking on the horizon and waiting to see and I have not seen yet. But it's our human nature when we when we, my wife does this, um, you, you cannot go looking at a house with her ever, ever, ever. You can't even dream about it. You can't even say, hey, let's just check what the market is because as soon as we start looking, it's time. Like right now, you, cannot, you can't go by any car dealerships. Um, Amazon has been very destructive to us. Because anything you want at any time, as soon as we see it, right, it's right there. Because we have this urgency. If we see it, if we can visualize it, then we want it to happen. And God just doesn't work that way. God gave this promise to Abraham. 
He waited years and years and years and years and years, and there's no promise. And, that, and on top of that, they're growing old. It says, if you read through the, the Genesis account, um, that they were basically, you know, close to dead. That that's, that's, that's what it says, that they were that They were of that age, and yet God is wanting to do something through Abraham that is going to require a supernatural miracle. God's intention was to give Abraham a son and an heir when it looked humanly impossible. In the next chapter, in Genesis 16, again, they're growing older with no way possible that they could perceive God bringing fulfillment. They weaken in their faith for a time, and they devise a plan by which they will use their own resources to help God fulfill his promise. You ever done that? Well, maybe God missed the boat, so now we have to enact. Maybe God just forgot about me here for a second. And then this next little bit is like this Jerry Springer kind of plan. Do y'all, y'all even know who Jerry Springer was? I guess he's dated now. Um, TMZ kind of uh, BuzzFeed. It was this weird thing that's about to go down. And let me remind us too, this is an Old Testament narrative, not a prescription of how we should live, okay? Paul's referring back to it to make exactly that point. Sarah comes up with this plan that she's got this beautiful handmaiden named Hagar, and she says, okay, well, if I can't give you a child to fulfill this promise of God, then why don't you sleep with Hagar? She can bear you a son. Just a few verses later, it says that that's exactly what happened, that Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son Ishmael. So when Paul says in Galatians 4.23 that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, what it's really meaning here is that he was the product of self-reliance. Abraham ceased to rely on God's power to fulfill his word, and instead he relied on his own power and ingenuity to get a son. And he thought everything was well, that he had done maybe what was right. And then 14 years later, we pick up, In Genesis 17, verse 16, God says to Abraham that his wife Sarah is going to have a son. Comes back to this promise. God intends to fulfill the promise in a way that removes all ground for boasting. In verse 17, we see this dialogue between Abraham and God of Genesis 17. I think I have this on the screen. Abraham fell on his face and laughed at God's promise. Said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and Sarah who is 90 years old to bear a child? And Abraham said to God, this is his, God, hey, I've got this other plan. Why don't you look at this other plan? Shall Sarah who is 90 bear a child? Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael, who's 16 at the time, or 15, might live in thy sight. He goes to God and said, God, hey, just bless my plan. I've got this thing figured out. You made the promise. You were slow to deliver. I went ahead and and did my own thing. Why don't you just bring blessing to this? God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. God rejects what Abraham was able to produce on his own and promises again that in spite of Abraham's age, he will have a son by his own wife, Sarah. Fast forward a couple chapters in Genesis to chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Isaac was not born according to the flesh because his birth was a result of God's supernatural intervention and fulfillment of his own promise. 
Abraham had learned his lesson. The only acceptable response to God's merciful promise is trusting in that promise. Not works of the flesh that try to bring down God's blessing with our efforts. Verse 23 of Galatians 4, back to our text, sums up the story. But the son of the slave, that's Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Then in verse 24, Paul says, this is to be interpreted allegorically or symbolically. These women represent two covenants. There are two contrasting versions here. Two contrasting covenants. One with Sarah based on the promise of God. One with Hagar based upon Abraham's own strength and wit. The one with Hagar, Abraham was trying to help God out. He was trying to receive God's promise, his end result, by shortcutting God's plans altogether. He wanted God's end without embracing God's means. Man, it hurts my heart even to say that because I just see myself in light of this all the time. I hate suffering. I hate difficulty. I hate frustration. Almost lost it this morning at my house because I couldn't find Hudson's other shoe. Like literally, I'm like, where could the shoe be? We're like throwing stuff over. Uh, my wife's been out of town all weekend. So the fact that I like, you know, got dressed this morning is just some you know, supernatural. Um, Abraham wanted God's end without embracing God's mean. Ultimately, this narrative in the Old Testament is to show us that Abraham was trying to rely on his own strength and wisdom instead of trusting in God's plan. But with Sarah, Abraham had to completely trust to God to come through. Again, Scripture says that they were as good as dead. Literally, it says that. There was nothing Abraham could do here. He was helpless in and of himself. And so these two scenarios are being played out with immediate application to our lives. The point Paul's trying to make, and one, Abraham trusted himself. He had faith in himself. Produced the child of the flesh, and the other Abraham trusted in God and placed his total faith in God. So, what is Paul trying to say here to this church, these churches? Like Abraham, these young Christians had come to faith as a result of God working in their hearts, of Him breaking through the darkness of their minds. Their hearts, however, they had come into the church, these false prophets who now trying to turn their attention away from the gospel and God's sovereign plan and being able to trust in him, away from the gospel and into their own merits. Their message was the, they needed not just the grace of God, but their own merits. Jesus, Jesus was not enough for salvation, these false prophets would claim, but salvation required their own work and their own effort. Yes, trust in Jesus, but you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. They continued that these people had to submit to the specific cultural regulations and eat specific food to really find favor with God. And one of the things that their argument, most scholars say, they likely used Abraham as the point, saying, don't you want to be a child of the promise? And that's why Paul is bringing it back up to make this point. That we have an option, even this morning, certainly this churches did, that we can be like children of Abraham or like children through Hagar. The children of Abraham and Sarah or children of Abraham and Hagar. In other words, we can trust in God and we can trust in his plans for us 
or we can trust in ourselves. And we can trust in our strength to make life happen the way we think it should. And when we choose one of those two courses, and I'm not saying that we choose one of them and we don't divert to the other. I think, at least in my life, there's a lot of switching back and forth. But when we live in one of those two cultures, uh, one of those two scenarios, we create one or two cultures or ethos in our wake, a culture of merit or a culture of grace. The culture of merit is just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and perform. This merit kind of culture says that we don't really need God to come through. We got this. A good definition might be self-reliance for self-fulfillment. That culture ultimately leads to pride if you're good at it and worry, discouragement, and fear if you're bad at it. Or, contrastly, there's this culture of grace that's fully dependent on participating with God to come through on his promises, connecting your life with the promises, to God, uh, uh, the promises of God to such a degree that they become more real than the things around you. A culture of merit leads to arrogance. Think about it. If it's a culture of merit and you've got to earn your way in, you've got to work to please God, then if you do well and you hit the mark and you keep the rules like the Pharisees did, it just ends up in arrogance. Hey, man, look at what I did in my own strength. It's Abraham with Hagar saying, well, God may have not come through, but look what I did in my own merit. A culture of merit leads to arrogance. Culture of merit leads to hopelessness. If you're truthful with yourself and God's standard is righteousness, that you can do a lot of good. But even the good deeds you offer him are like filthy rags before him. That leads to hopelessness. In your heart of hearts, you know that on your own that you'll never measure up. A culture of merit leads to exhaustion. Always trying to earn your salvation. Always trying to prove that you are lovely. That you're good enough. That you, you deserve respect. That just leads to exhaustion. I mean, that's an exhausting kind of life. I think, again, social media creates this false facade that we have to look a certain way and it's not just social media it's just they didn't come up with the phrase keeping up with the joneses when facebook came out like this has been out forever that we see this we buy this lie that we have to look a certain way or act a certain way for us to be happy and it leads to exhaustion and on and on we could go paul trying to make this point in order to achieve salvation to be part of God's kingdom, to be sons and daughters in God's family, or to earn the promises of God in our own strength and power just leads to slavery. But Paul says in the beginning of chapter 4, you think you're free, but you're really just a slave. Conversely though, but to trust in Jesus to find your identity in him, to come to him as children, weak and helpless in our own strength, resting on him, to live in, a, live in that kind of way, it brings rest and hope and joy. If a culture of merit leads to arrogance, then the culture of grace leads to humility. Culture of merit leads to hopelessness. Culture of grace leads to, leads to real hope. If a culture of merit leads to exhaustion, then a culture of grace leads to joy. When we trust in and of ourselves, not only are we unfulfilled and grumpy, 
Our lives are plagued with fear and worry and competition. We worry that we'll never measure up. We're fearful that our facade will be exposed. To prove ourselves, we live in competition with all of those around us. And if anyone gets in our way, we despise them and we try to undercut them and hurt them in a way that everyone else within our circle will see this and they'll say, well, they are certainly the stronger one. It's a terrible way to live. There's no freedom in that. It's the definition that most of our world lives in right now. Let me ask you this. What, by the way you live, what, what culture do you create? One based on merit? Are those people around you always on edge because anything that brings frustration into your life is you're just going to snap, you're going to go off, or... You're going to just withdraw and not talk to anyone? Do you live in such a way? I tell you one way to find out is what happens when difficulty comes. What happens? You immediately begin to wring your hands. How are we going to get out of this one? Or do you go to the Lord in prayer? I think that's, that's one of the telltale signs. What, what, what culture am I creating? A culture of merit or a culture of grace? What do we do when difficulty comes? I'm reminded by this all the time. Just yesterday, I don't remember what happened. I'm with my kids again. Frustrated by something. And my daughter says, well, dad, why don't we just pray about it? I'm like, shut up, Claire. I'm the preacher in this family. (laughs) What are you talking about? Pray about it. Listen, Christianity is so countercultural. Culture of grace is so foreign. It's the inside out way to live. God working in us in order to change us. We don't work to try to appease God. No, our effort is the passionate outward expression of a life centered on Jesus, not the source of our transformation. He goes on and Quotes Isaiah 54. This is where um, Augustine, if you've read much of him, talks about the city of God and the city of man. As Paul even talks about this, that those that are children of slavery, those according to Hagar, corresponds to present Jerusalem, this, this tangible city that you can touch. But there's this other city, the city of God that we belong to. Verse 26, it says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And the result of that in verse 27, as he's quoting Isaiah, is joy, rejoice. It's an oxymoronic statement right there. Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, those of you who are so well aware of your own faults that find yourself in the most weakened state, rejoice. Rejoice when you remember that you cannot earn salvation. Rejoice when you remember that your bones have been crushed. Rejoice when you feel like you just can't take another step. That's when it's time to rejoice because you are trusting in the sovereignty of God to come through. And that is something worth celebrating. Paul sums this entire thought up in chapter 5, verse 1. 
as a segue, and we'll talk about this again next week, but this verse that you've probably heard many times, for freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't think that you came into God's kingdom by the grace of God, but you have to live to please him through your own work. That is just not how it works. This essentially means two things for us personally and as a church. One, just think about this. Can you imagine a community of faith who created a culture of grace? Where we weren't quick to judge or point fingers. We weren't quick to repost or call neighbors and say, man, can you believe what this person put on Facebook? Did you hear what happened to this person or that person? We would create a culture of grace. Can you imagine what that would look like? It would look like good news to the rest of the world. I grew up in church. My dad started several churches and pastored many more. I was thinking about this very rarely in my life ever. Can I look back and think about a family of faith that I belong to that really had a culture of grace? Here's the two things. Immediate application, I think it means for us. I think I have these on the screen first. Jesus and nothing else must be our main thing at all times. Jesus and nothing else must be our main thing at all times. Our main emphasis at church, our main emphasis in our family, our main emphasis in our personal lives, our main emphasis in our community groups and in our huddles. Our main emphasis must always be on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our anthem must always be the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross and our hope in his eventual return. Even the Apostle Paul decided, he says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the thing. Even this week, even in our church, it has been so aware to me that we live in a lost world. We have people that are hurting. We talked about this morning people that are struggling with cancer. And we've got real issues. We live in a very broken world. It's all around us, the brokenness. We try to insulate ourselves from most of that brokenness, but it's nevertheless all around us. I'm saying the task in front of us is huge. How would we have time for infighting? How would we have time for little things that don't, don't really matter? I think that really leads to my second point. First point, Jesus has got to be the main thing. Second point, everything else takes a back seat to Jesus. Everything else takes a back seat to Jesus. Our feelings, our preferences, our dreams, all take a back seat to Jesus and his mission that he has invited us to be a part of. In, these, in this passage, the Galatian false teachers were trying to convert the church to the norms of their particular tribe, that you've got to look like this and dress like this. These ethical standards, putting the focus on what they do, but instead Paul says the focus should be on love and adoration of Jesus. The psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but unto you. 
Do we live lives with that anthem? Not to me. This is not about me. This is not about my family. Not even about my dreams. Not about my bank account. Not about my status and my little neck of the woods that I live in. This is not about those things. That my life, my life's aim, my life's mission is so focused on Jesus and his gospel. That maybe one day we'll say like Paul did. That I have finished the race. That I have fought the good fight. That I've been poured. I've literally poured out my life like a drink offering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Can I be honest with you? I want nothing more for my kids to see that in me. Not the status quo. Not the moving up in the world. Not climbing some kind of corporate ladder. Laid my life down for Jesus and his gospel. I pray that we as a church, Covenant Church, would create a culture of grace. And that's only going to come from fathers leading their homes to be a culture of grace. We celebrate communion um, every week, and we're going to do that in just a minute. Before we do that, and communion is this great reminder, this physical act, this drama played out to remind us again and again of this inward reality of what really did happen to remind us that all of life should be about Jesus, that we should walk in his ways through his power. Before we do that, I'm just going to invite you to pray where you're at. I'm going to lead us, and uh, the band's going to come up and play. But Would you take a moment just kind of right where you're at and do just an honest self-assessment? Do you live in step with the promises of God, dependent upon him? Are you a member of this city of God that he speaks of here or city of man? Are you resting on your own merits to please God, to attain the promises of God through your own merit? Or are you trusting him? When we know who we are in Jesus as part of his family, then the result is joyful obedience. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us. For these two courses set before us. We'll believe in the true gospel and follow you not boasting of anything that we do. If anything, you even told Paul that it's in our weaknesses that you shine, your strength shines. Or are we a group of people that are just playing religious games, just showing up to appease our conscience? I pray, Father, as we've sung even earlier, that we would be reminded that your son Jesus is better in our suffering and our victories and difficulty. We would be reminded that you're better. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus that we would see him and worship him that we would turn away from all these false idols that clamor for our attention. As we take communion, would this be one more way that we would 
see you, Jesus, and your incredible love for us. Your death on the cross, your rising from the grave, your rising to heaven on the Mount of Ascension and the promise that you're going to come again. Receive us unto yourself. And until that day comes, as we wait for the trumpet to blow, Father, I pray that our hearts are eager to be about your mission of spreading the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.